Welcome to Freestyle Thoughts, the dance podcast. I'm your host, Anna, and this is episode five. Today, we're doing sort of an epilogue to our Chinese dance overview episodes. As I was editing and recording the those episodes, I realized that there were some specific things that I wanted to talk about and share, not only because the dances I'm talking about, the original section was like already too long, but also because they're like super iconic and, or I have like little fun anecdotes and we could talk about them. It'll be fun. <laughs> So there are a decent amount of dances that depict or allude to the legend of the white snake. It's just kind of everywhere in Chinese media, but supposedly this legend is counted among China's four greatest folk tales. Because I enjoyed looking this up, I'm going to share with you what the other three folk tales are. But I'm ripping this straight from Wikipedia, so in no particular order, the other three legends are Mengjianru butterfly lovers, and the cowherd and the weaver girl. So first is Meng Jianru, or Lady Meng Jiang. And the story goes, Lady Meng Jiang's husband was forced to serve by the imperial officers and sent to build part of the Great Wall of China. And so Lady Meng Jiang, hearing nothing after his departure and missing him so very much, set out to visit him. But by the time she reaches the Great Wall, her husband's already dead. So upon finding out the news, she weeps so bitterly that a large part of the Great Wall collapses. Then in some versions, she jumps into the river to evade capture after the wall crumbles. Supposedly, some official is on the Great Wall or showing the emperor the part of the Great Wall that's recently built. And then it crumbles because of Lady Mengjiang's crying. And then they were going to arrest her. So her solution is to jump into the river. Moving on, second is Butterfly Lovers, which is another tragic, <laughs> it's about another pair of tragic lovers named Jun Tai and Liang Shampo. And in this one, they meet when Jun Tai is disguised as a man to go to school and is only found out when Liang Shampo is, visits her at her home like months later. The story goes, Liang Shampo finds out Jun Tai's identity and then they fall in love. They make a till death to us part vow, but it's very soon revealed that Jun Tai's father has already engaged her to somebody else. It's either the son of a wealthy merchant or the son of an official, whatever. The point is that it's some other dude of relative high standing. So Yang Shambo, upon finding out the news, is so heartbroken that he dies. On the day of Jun Tai's wedding, she visits Yang Shambo's grave. Praise to the heaven that the grave will open up, and then by the power of the heavens, the grave opens up. Zero hesitation, Jun Tsai jumps into the grave, and then emerging from the tomb is a pair of butterflies, never to be separated again. Okay, so let's move on to our third and technical final background folktale, and that is the cowherd and the weaver girl. So this is about a romance, and it's, it's okay, I, I guess a spoiler for the... Legend of the White Snake, all four of these are about love turned tragic in some way. So the cowherd and the weaver girl is about Junyu, which means weaver girl and is symbolized by the star Vega. And Nyolang, which it means cowherd and represents Altair, the star. 
So Jinu is the daughter of some goddess. And one day she visits the mortal lands and falls in love and ends up marrying Niolang. And when Jinu's mother finds out about the marriage, she takes Jinu away into the heavens. And Niolang chases after his wife on his magical ox. But to keep the lovers apart, Jinu's mother cuts the sky in half with her hairpin and inadvertently creates the Milky Way. However, moved by their love, there is this flock of magpies that forms a bridge across the Milky Way, allowing Junyu and Yolang to reunite for one day on the seventh day of the seventh lunar month. Yeah, so I guess maybe this one isn't like as tragic as the other ones. It's, it's not less dramatic than Butterfly Lovers and the Legend of the White Snake, in my opinion. But I'm pretty sure that there's like a similar myth in Japanese culture that explains like the two stars. So the Legend of the White Snake, it's another love story, but it's the most dramatic of the four in my opinion. This time our story is about a man named Xu Xian and a snake spirit named Bai Xu Jun. And one day a white snake sees a green snake about to be, okay, what the Wikipedia said, it was like degalled by a beggar. <laughs> And then I looked it up, and apparently, like, back in the day, like, snake galls could go for a decent amount of money, so I don't know. But upon seeing this green snake about to basically die and then be gutted, the white snake transforms to a woman and buys the green snake off of this beggar, ultimately saving the green snake. So this green snake super grateful, and from then on regards the white snake as, like, a dia dia, an older sister. Time skip. 18 years later, the snakes transformed themselves into women named Bai Shujen, who is the white snake, and Xiao Qing, who is the green snake. They meet a man named Xu Xian, who like lends them an umbrella as it's currently raining. Spoiler, in terms of Chinese dance, I would say dancers that reference the legend stop their references here because here on out, the story gets freaking wild. I need to finish the story to just share with you like how crazy off the rails the story gets and maybe i'm wondering if the reason one of the reasons why this story just goes off the rails so fast is because it's it's a, it's more popular in chinese media than the other three are so continuing on with the basic folktale xu xian and bai xu jin slowly fall in love and they get married and they open a medicine shop to care together an apothecary that's what they're called bai xu jin at some point is tricked into drinking some alcohol, some laced drink, whatever. And she uh, is forced to basically reveal her true form, i.e. like being, that is that she is a white snake spirit. And when her true form is revealed, Xixian dies of shock and then is resurrected and continues to love Bai Shujin. And then later, shenanigans happen. Xixian is captured and imprisoned. Bai Shujin tries to rescue him, but ends up just killing a lot of innocent people in a flood and fails. And then she finds out she's pregnant. <laughs> and then <laughs> Shujin ends up escaping. And also, Bai Shujin gives birth to their child. But now, apparently, it's her turn to be imprisoned. I th if I remember correctly, I think this is because she killed all the innocent people in her failed rescue attempt. Just just so you know, Xiao Qing is still around in the background and when Bai Shujin gets in prison, she like vows vengeance. And then there's like an indefinite many years later, another time skip, and Xiao Qing is able to return Bai Shujin's favor from all of those years ago 
and frees Bai Qijin, allowing her to reunite with her husband and son. And that's how the story ends. Do you see how like it's just off the walls crazy? But apparently this legend was originally a story about good and evil, where Bai Qijin is like representing like trickery and evil. So originally the story went Bai Qijin basically transforms into a beautiful woman and tricks Qixian to loving her, and then she becomes rightfully imprisoned at the end of the story. But, you know, over time, it became a love story. And let me just tell you, like, there are reasons why Bai Qijin was tricked into revealing her true form, and why she was imprisoned and all this stuff. And that's because I totally cut out this other character, because I was able to tell the story, the main beats, without this character. And honestly, if you look at the Wikipedia summary of The Legend of the White Snake, versus, say, Butterfly Lovers. This one is just so much longer, so I felt like I had to summarize it somehow. But anyway, so Legend of the White Snake has had its turn being adapted into a dance. I've linked a handful of them in the description, but you can tell that they are more loose interpretations of the legend, and others are like closer interpretations. But I mean, like at the end of the day, it's not ballet. None of the dances actually tell the legend of the story. It's more like taking a scene from that story and then putting that into a dance. I did want to drag your attention to two of the four videos I've linked though. Firstly, this one is called Qing Shu Yu Bai Shu. All of these names are going to be like some variation of Green Snake and White Snake. Uh, I think one of them is called like After the Rain, which you can imagine what part of the story that is. Um, anyways, so this is a pretty old video, but you can see how the legend has affected this dance. And, you know, firstly, the costuming, which is kind of consistent across all four videos. But, you know, it's the green costume and the white costume, the green snake and the white snake. But, you know, there's also this focus on the umbrella at the beginning. And you can just kind of see through the dance that the snakes have, you know, a close relationship with each other. And this is kind of when they're first both turned into women. And I guess it would be after meeting Xixian because they, they already have the umbrella. And I, as like they ditch the umbrella... This is, that's when the rain is ending. I don't know. I just love it. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, this dance gives me like good vibes energy. One of my friends actually did this dance with another girl from our dance studio. And I think they did a good job. I imagine this dance is kind of difficult to pull off because the lifting, or at least not the lifting, like supporting of somebody else's body weight. But fun fact, during our dress rehearsal for the Lunar New Year show that they are performing this one in, I think this was one that was filmed and then we were given the links to it. But my friend was in my friend was the white snake. So when she drops the umbrella, I guess she could let go of it in a way that the umbrella flew and hit the camera. It was like a whole ordeal. <laughs> no one got hurt and the camera was fine, but it was definitely like a brief pause in the rehearsal. It's just now that I'm thinking about it, it's actually really funny because that's definitely not the first time that somebody has hit the camera with their prop. <laughs> like my friend who did Xiaowei Xiaowei did uh, when she kicked off her shoes, she she also hit the camera. But then unlike now, they just kept it in the take. They didn't it wasn't like a big thing. In the end she only had like one video and so they subsequently just moved the camera to the other side of the room. But for this incident, I guess it was a bigger deal because they stopped the recording. Once everything was okay, they started the music back right up until the point where the oopsie happened. So, I don't know. Okay, so there isn't really a name for this one. They kind of just labeled it as 
China dance competition show, Green Snake, White Snake. There's not really a name for this dance because it was on the Chinese version of So You Think You Could Dance and like adjacent shows like that. It was a, it was a dance competition show. And it was my interpretation of these dances is that it takes the inspiration from the part specifically when the snakes transform into women as opposed to the iconic umbrella scene. And this dance is very clearly a more modern dance. Like, I mean, modern contemporary dance. They're not wearing any shoes. There isn't really any Chinese dance technique. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of lyrical, actually, like towards once the singing starts and then the audience starts clapping in on beat. <laughs> but as you can tell, this dance does still require, I mean, it's still like a high level dance. It's just not like Chinese classical dance. It's something much more akin to like modern contemporary, like I said. <laughs> but my dance studio in high school did this dance as well. And actually my friend's duet partner from like our, the last dance, she uh, was in this one also. But I actually don't remember which snake she was. But it, I don't know. I think it's kind of funny that this person was in two green snake, white snake dances. <laughs> and it's another fun. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I tried to get one of my friends to do this dance with me in university for, for Cypher. But she thought it was too sexy and awkward. And you know what? Fair enough. They do like stand on chairs and face the back while they shed their robes to I make mean, their wearing cheap paws underneath. And it's supposed to represent the snakes shedding their skins and transforming into women. But you know what? Fair enough. The, I think the, the saxophone and the modern connotations of the saxophone didn't really help. <laughs> but I don't know. This dance just so, looks like so much fun. I don't think I'll be able to do it now. Just judging by my, my physical abilities now. But back then, I felt confident enough that I was able to do it at least okay enough. I would say with the exception of Ching Su Yu Bai Su, I mean, like, dancing like a snake is like, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like fairly sensual, I guess. So, I mean, at least from my experience, I've seen dances based off of The Legend of the White Snake reserved for like older dancers, at least, at the very least in high school. But to know one dance that is super common that's not reserved for older dancers, Taoyao, or the English is called Peach Fairies. And if you can't tell by the thumbnail of this dance video, this is a classical dance. It's a super common one at that. And I've honestly seen this dance be done with large groups and very small groups of people. I've seen professional and recreational dancers do this dance, older and younger dancers. It's bas it's really like a staple once you get past the beginner phase of Chinese dance. I cannot emphasize how iconic this dance is. The choreography is hardly ever changed. And there aren't really any other interpretations of this music either. And the music isn't used anywhere else. So clearly this is this dance is very popular. My studio from elementary school, in the three years that I was there, did this dance twice. And unlike green, the Green Snake and White Snake dances, it does, at least to my knowledge, Taoyao does not have a, a very rich background. I don't know, this dance is just like, it's, it's a staple. It's like a staple for an intermediate level dancer. And I felt absolutely compelled to share this dance. I personally have never done this dance, but I've learned sections of this dance at various points in time. But while I'm still doing Chinese dance, I'm really hoping I get to do this dance. I mentioned that I'm probably never gonna do like a peacock dance. And you know what? I am okay with that. 
but I am not okay with not doing Taoyao. Like, this is on my bucket list, guys. When I started my Chinese dance club in university, for our first performance, I really wanted us to do a classical dance. And somehow, I completely forgot about Taoyao. Like, if I could go back in time, guys, I would absolutely do this dance instead of the one that we did. I ended up having a soft spot for the dance that we ended up doing. But, I mean, the dance we ended up doing is no Taoyao. On a kind of separate note, I think I... I got low-key accidentally requested that my current dance class do a dance, which is specific, I, specifically, it's Qingfeng Shulai, which I linked in the classical dance episode. So I kind of already used up my requests that I didn't really know I had. But if I knew that we could make requests, I would have requested Taoyao. It's so iconic, guys. It's so iconic. Another pretty iconic classical dance, I would just say it's just, it's not a staple like Taoyao is. And by this, I mean, I just haven't seen younger dances do this dance as much, even though I think this dance is probably a little bit easier in some ways. The dance we're talking about is taka, and it's, a, it's another classical dance, and I know it's a sleeves dance. I've actually seen this dance be referred to as, like, a tap dance, and that's because I would say that this dance doesn't require a lot of technique. It's more like being soft and pretty, but this dance also comes with a pretty fun quirk, I would say. So clearly there are more lyrical songs in Chinese dance, but it's, if, if there are lyrics, it's a huge taboo to mouth the lyrics, even if this song is just like a regular song like Qing Se Yu Bai Se. Let's contrast that with K-pop covers. In K-pop covers, it's more common to mouth the lyrics to get into the mood. Overall, to my knowledge at least, in my experience, it's not frowned upon in the same way. but Taka is very unique in this aspect. It's very common to see dancers specifically for this dance mouthing the lyrics. Like all of the dancers are singing the song. And I think that is just a, such a fun quirk of this dance. Just like, I don't know, because it's, it's just like not a thing in, in other parts of Chinese dance. It's so much not a thing that it's, you don't even have to ask. I would say sometimes, at least my experience in basic, Sometimes the director would be like, if we're filming, they would say, oh, don't mouth the lyrics. I was definitely one of those directors, and maybe that's because of my Chinese dance history. But, I mean, if the director didn't specify, I would say it's more common when we're filming than when we were performing. If a director didn't say, don't mouth the lyrics, it's common to see dancers mouthing lyrics, and it's fine. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's different. It's different. But, you know, let's let's go Okay, I had a point where I was going with there, but I kind of just kept on rambling. So you know what? I'm going to expand on something that I commented on earlier. So I said earlier that Taka has been referred to as a tap dance. And I just want to emphasize that I don't mean that it's in any way related to like tap the genre. I mean, first of all, the rowing ballet shoes, it's not such a, there isn't the same emphasis of footwork as there is in tap. Like, they aren't wearing any special shoes or anything. But what I mean by that is, by Tago as a tap dance, is that from pretty early on in the dance, when they're rubbing the sleeves together, they aren't, like, the dancers aren't bending their knees and shifting their weight. They're actually, like, stepping and tapping with one foot. They tap their foot, hence tap dance. But this dance actually kind of comes with a fun story. So I have technically done this dance. 
I never want to put a major emphasis on technically. Like, I had a costume, I learned the dance, I had places in a formation, but I never performed it. So, we were meant to perform this dance for Milan 2012, but my solo is right after Tagla in the set, so I wasn't, I wasn't in Tagla. But we did have a performance in November 2012 where we reused a lot of dances from Mulan 2012. And that performance was an absolute logistical nightmare. Tago was a big dance. It had, I'm not sure of how many, I think we had three dance classes at the time. But if not, if not all three, I don't know. But all of the dance classes had a part in this dance. Like we, the dance was broken down into thirds. And I think, I believe it went, the youngest kids, they had, the first section, then the second section went to like my sister's class. And then the last section was for the oldest dancers and that was the class I was in. Uh, from the stage perspective, it, it actually wasn't that bad. But for some reason at this performance, the youngest class at some point almost completely dissolved. So the remaining people, which I think was like one person, got collapsed into that middle class. I think that happened by November. So we actually had to rework the dance so that my class was in two-thirds of the dance. So we took the intro part from like the little, little kids who were no longer at the school. And then like the middle class, now youngest class, they had the section that they had for the performance, just like added a couple of people or something like that. And then at the very end, my class still had our part. So let me explain to you what I mean by this performance was a logistical nightmare because... The dance tagla itself was not a logistical nightmare, despite what it may sound like. First of all, we we were given a tent to change in, but it was pitch black. And normally when they provided us with accommodations, they would provide, well, one, usually lighting. Two, they would put it on top of solid ground. And three, that there, there would usually be pulled up tables inside of the tent. Um, none of those th three things were happening. Like I remember we were like, in the rocks and there were no tables so we were basically in this pitch black tent with zero tables to put our stuff on and so that's not a great start you know it was really uncomfortable on our feet because we didn't have enough time to like slip on any shoes we just kind of had to sit there in our ballet shoes like on these rocks but that's not even like that's not the worst part that's part it's just like poor accommodations like it's only like part one of the perfect storm kind of so our moms had to help us change, but here's the problem. A lot of us were siblings, so a lot of our situations were two dancers to one mom. That's not great. There was not a lot of time to change into the taco costume, so everyone basically had just a minute or two to change into this fairly elaborate costume. Keeping in mind the ratio of one mom to two dancers is already bad, but... Again, the set list aligned so that I was not in the first part of Taga because I think my solo was right before Taga. From what I remember, the three older girls who were in my class, they were in their costumes. They performed the first part of the dance easy. And then the younger class just like didn't make it out on time. Like I just remember this dressing room pitch black tent being absolute chaos. And I honestly, in hindsight, not quite sure 
how the older girls pulled off this dance. Maybe they, they just killed the music. I, I don't know because there was a good, like, at least minute and 30 seconds in between when they would be on the stage again. So, don't know. that. I mean, to be quite honest, that performance had many, many technical problems in regards to audio. So, so honestly, it's a lot of things that could have reasonably happened. Have I done Tago since that performance or had an opportunity to do it? No. Do I still remember Tago? I have never tested it. And I have no intention of do, of testing it, but I'm very sure that there are different sections that of that dance that refuse to die in my brain. So let's move on. <laughs> so I talked about in the last episode of our Chinese dance series that I've done Huayao Hua, and I have... A few number of anecdotes regarding Huayao Hua that I want to share that I didn't get the chance to share in that in that episode. So I've linked the version of the dance that I was in in the description this time. I know the video is called Chinese New Year 2021, but this dance was performed in 2017. For reference, this was the COVID Lunar New Year. So I'm not quite sure what other dance studios did, but both my university and my dance studio, they did pre-recorded Lunar New Year show, but but my dance studio took dances from previous years. So they tried to feature the dancers who are still like at the studio for obvious reasons. At least for the finale, they were trying to find a dance that wasn't in too recent memory. I guess they pulled this one from 2017. I don't know. I don't know why they pulled this dance instead of like the one from 2018, but I don't know. But guys, do I have some stories? I guess some background is appropriate. So at the time, I was a junior in high school. I lived far away from my dance studio, so I didn't go to school with my friends from dance or to a school that was like even near my friends' schools. <laughs> but I did go to school with one girl who was in my dance class. She was actually in the year below me at school. And, you know, we were actually sort of family friends. We're both adopted from China, so our parents met at functions hosted by this organization called Families with Children from China. And since both me and this girl, we were at that school since middle school. So our moms reconnected and they got closer while we were in school. So by the time I was a junior, everyone at dance knew that I was objectively the closest with this girl. Like if she missed a practice, they would turn to me for the reason. And I assume vice versa. I just didn't miss practices often. I just actually, I'm not sure if I missed practices at all that year. So the way that our school would work is that we would have some sort of technique dance for our fall September performance and then have a really big group dance for the Lunar New Year show. Sometimes our technique performance would be combined with the class below us because they had more people so it would look more impressive. But the big dance for the Lunar New Year show was always a combined class dance. For the 2017 Lunar New Year show, the big combined class dance was Huayahua and I was in the older class at this point. I was either the second oldest or the oldest at this point. I can't remember if one if, if this one girl was was still dancing with us or not. But either way, I was like I was on the older end. Like older, the oldest of us was like a, a fourth year in high school, 
And for reference, the youngest, I want to say, was either in seventh or eighth grade. So the, or maybe even sixth, to be quite honest. So that age range, that's the age range that we're working with. You know, there's a lot of us. Most of us were middle schoolers. A lot of the people who were in my class who were early high school, though, they were contemplating quitting for various reasons. Academics, they weren't a fan of the environment. Um, they had other interests, etc. So we're doing these large, extra long practices for this combined dance. And one day my schoolmate, she just stopped showing up. And mind you, the point that this happens, it's like, I'm, I, I think it was like early January and our performance was late January or early February. We had practice once a week, but we would meet for at least two hours. But still, it was, it was absolute crunch time for those at least two hours that we were meeting for each practice. I want to say that we were working at this point, we were working on probably like the last parts of the dance. So when my classmate just didn't show up, people were just thought it was like, oh, like maybe she's sick or something, I think. But it was also at the same time, like kind of unusual because, you know, we were so close to the performance. So everyone eventually turns to me and she, they ask why my schoolmate wasn't a, wasn't at dance class. And I had zero idea. Again, I saw her Friday. She looked healthy. It was fine. So I called her and no answer. And the thing is, like we had class on Sunday, but it's not like, but we had class on Sunday evening. So I knew for a fact that me calling them on a Sunday evening, like if like it's not like I was gonna be disturbing them at church. So I didn't feel bad about calling them. So I called her, no answer. I called her mom, equally no answer. And then, you know, at that point we all just kind of shrugged and figured that I can call her back at some point on a water break or just wait until she calls me back if it was within our within like during practice. So we go on and I don't think I hear back to her until at least like maybe halfway through practice. So on a water break, I get to, I'm listening to this message that her mom left for me. And the message basically said that my schoolmate quit and what's done was done. And I felt like this is a pretty important for at least the teacher to know because there's some formations. Okay. For it's a big dance, right? But there's some formations that were absolutely impacted by, by having either one more or one less person. So knowing this, I told the teacher that my schoolmate quit so we can address the problems. And I just remember being so shook and also kind of mad. And I, and I wasn't mad that they quit. I mean, like I didn't know that they were con contemplating quitting. The part that just like made me angry and confused was the fact that they quit like three-ish weeks until the performance. We had to pay for performance fees, and my friend already paid the performance fee, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure she paid to rent the costume already. She, I'm pretty sure she paid for that entire month of classes. Not to mention, you have to approach group dances like a team, and she was absolutely 100% letting the team down. And I understand wanting to quit, but in a team... Like, I feel like you have to be conscientious of when you quit because so that it doesn't like impact everyone, you know? And I'm not saying that my friend's reasons for quitting were invalid. Her reasons for quitting are so valid. And if 
assuming that those are her actual reasons, yeah, she should have quit. And I'm not saying that she shouldn't have quit. It's just that, I don't know, like, like on the other hand, it's that those reasons have been going on for such a long time, for like multiple years, like those are reasons why she wanted to quit. And so it's not like it was some dire situation that just happened. And I don't necessarily think it was like the straw that broke the camel's back either. I don't know, but I think she should have quit before it became crunch time or after the performance. Like, there were other girls in that class who were thinking about quitting too. And they were very seriously contemplating quitting. But they were planning to quit after the performance. I don't know. Maybe I'm just an asshole. I don't know, but I just remember being, I remember being mad about this. And I think that if this dance were just high schoolers, it would have been inconvenient, okay, no matter what. And it would have taken a lot of hard work. But I don't think it would have been as stressful in a lot of ways. All the high schoolers in that dance knew that missing one person from this dance, we had to be busting our asses. Not just because we have to kind of like fix formations, because for the most part, you know, my class wasn't, wasn't affected as much by the formation changes. But the reason why we knew that we ever had to bust our asses was because of the middle schoolers. By this point, the middle schoolers were just starting to know, to figure out, they were just figuring out the dance, kind of. Like, like they were just getting the hang of the dance. Like, they just started memorizing the dance with the formations and everything. So changing stuff this late in the game, it, to say the least, it was just so bad. And changing it just only added to the confusion that the middle schoolers were experiencing. Or if not experiencing, they just like weren't taking practice seriously. Either way, the middle schoolers were definitely a burden in, in this situation. And I would say this would be, again, I would say this would be bad for any group dance because it was going to affect all the formations. But again, for like such a big group, you could usually hide it with as little changes as possible. But there's this one part in Huayahua that affected everyone. And everyone was confused and or pissed. And the product very much shows that we were missing one person. It's the part where we're in two lines. One group is like sitting up on their knees. The other one's like sitting down. They alternate. And it just kind of depended on your position, whether you started up or down. And I don't know. It just it really felt disrespectful at the worst and inconsiderate at least to quit so close to crunch time like I don't know the production of this dance was just so chaotic in like the worst ways possible not in the worst ways that I've experienced chaotic productions though but I don't know it was so it was also just like I think for me the straw that broke the camel's back for me regarding the situation was that subsequently my friend at school like that following monday so here we are sunday and everything was blowing up i go to school the following day and my friend is acting like nothing happened like she didn't just leave a storm in her wake like i remember, just, I, remember I remember being mad but you know what we sort of managed i remember that the oldest person in our dance who she was a soloist but she wasn't in our dance class and so she wasn't always practicing with us but she was a year above me in school. She took it upon herself to run the dance backstage to make sure that everyone knew what they were doing. And I remember that, at least for me, I managed to adapt to everything pretty quickly. A lot of my friends who were in the formations around me also managed to adapt 
to things pretty quickly. But, you know, more importantly, I had my first solo at that school that year. So my mind was on other things. (laughs) And the remaining practices after my schoolmate quit, like we were run pretty hard to not only fix things, but to get things up and running. And I remember at the time thinking that while we were technically just kind of scraping by, I thought that it was presentable enough, but I guess I wasn't seeing how the middle schoolers were faring with the last minute changes. And apparently they were doing poorly to say the least if this dancer felt compelled to call a last minute rehearsal backstage. I had done dances with her before and she never called rehearsals like this before. So I can only assume that it was because it was very clear that a lot of the dancers who were middle schoolers were struggling. But I do remember running the end of this dance a lot. The part where all the dancers gather to watch the seed get planted into the ground. Honestly, I, I didn't. The, my job did not require a lot of acting. Me and some of the other soloists who were in that dance were in the very back of the group. Our job was to make ourselves look small so that we can basically run off stage to the quick change booth as soon as the, as the lights went dark. So this means that the middle schoolers are front and visible. And I guess they weren't taking this last minute dress rehearsal seriously for some reason, even though you know they were the ones who were struggling. But I remember the speech that Tina gave us, and that was, and that, that's who we're calling the person who was running these backstage run-throughs, um, Tina. Um, so Tina, for reference, was not only the best dancer in this group, but she was also someone who took the acting part of Chinese dance very seriously. Uh, so the fact that these middle schoolers were barely tolerating being at this extra practice when they didn't have anything better to do really got to her. So I remember, so she, she, she talks to us very seriously. And she was, I remember parts of this, her speech. Like she was like, guys, this is serious. I need you to be serious. No giggling. Like be serious, guys. It's not funny. We are representing a group of people and trying to tell a story. These people are able to work and live off the land. And this is the seed that is going to sustain their lifestyle. We are planting the next seed or something like that. And I remember she was so passionate that she was tearing up. (laughs) She really emphasized how everyone needed to take this dance very seriously. And the majority at that point was not taking it seriously. She kept on telling us to review this dance during our downtime. And for the middle schoolers, this was their only dance in a performance. So that comment was definitely aimed at them because uh, I think she knew that those of us with solos were probably going to be worrying about our solos more than this group dance. But clearly at the end of the day, the dance worked. I actually remember being stressed about having... When we first got the costumes, I remember being stressed about having our hats staying on our heads. So we only had this like these like flimsy bobby pins to pin it to our head. And every time we shook our head, the hat would bob a little bit and threaten to fall off. And it was such a stressful feeling. I don't know how much distress was felt amongst like the entire group, but I was in the second group that comes out on stage. So the head shaking was a thing that was going to be happening. <laughs> and like when I was preparing for this episode, I was watching the video that I've linked like a handful of times trying to remember which one I was. And I sort of remembered 
which one I was, or I think I remember which one I was, and then I immediately lost me when everyone went to the cube. <laughs> I think I was the second person to the left in the group that travels across the stage, but I don't know. I, I, I don't remember. Ultimately, I do remember learning this dance quite fondly, like before things became crunch time. If you don't remember what me meme culture was like during that time, dabbing was a thing, but it was a dying thing. So we were learning the movement, the movements in the cube, the part where it starts to slow down. And I remember we were saying to help us remember, we were like, oh, this movement is kind of like a dab. And then we break it and change formations. So on the water breaks, we were just like goof off and do that movement, but like actually dab instead of doing the movement the way it was supposed to be. And I remember our dance teacher would watch us during this break and just kind of judge us, but she didn't really understand English well enough to understand the slang. So she was kind of like, uh, the movement's not that, but it's the water break and you guys are clearly goofing off. So whatever, I'm going to go to the bathroom was like kind of her energy. And then later, I guess our Mimi dabbings during the water breaks like started to actually bleed into our actual execution of the dance when we were being serious. And our dance teacher literally stood up and she's like, why are you doing this? And then she did the movement the way that we were doing it, but it was like the most aggressive dab that I had ever seen. And I remember we were, try we were trying to be serious about it, but we were, we were very giggly about it because it's like, I don't know. It's not every day that you see this very, this relatively serious older Chinese woman who prides herself on doing, on being specialized in Chinese dance, dabbing as aggressively as possible. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> it was great. I think about it from time to time. Ultimately, I would say of all the Chinese dances I've done, I don't remember Huayohua the best. But in university, to become a director and to teach a dance for basic, we had to go through this director training. It was kind of just whatever the head director wanted it to be. During COVID, it was a slideshow presentation um, showing tips on how to make formations and how to manage time both within one practice and within respect to the total number of practices. Then there was also tips on group management, software that we might need to look into because we were teaching it online, et cetera, et cetera. Another one, for example, I'm not, she technically didn't really have a proper director training because it was COVID, her year, but my friend, she was uh, the head director for one year, and I personally see this as partially as director training, but she, before, for a new director, before they had their first practice, she would schedule like a one-on-one -on -one with the director and have that director teach her a part of the section that you plan to teach during your first practice, and then if you didn't get through all of it in the time allotted, she would ask, how far are you trying to get? And we would talk about more, more in specifics. And honestly, I, th I thought that was very effective. But that's not the conversation that we're having here today. The first time I was going through director training, it was literally just prove that you can teach a dance with zero preparation. Because all the new directors had no idea what to expect. Like, one of the upperclassmen came from, like, she came from a date. And she didn't have any time to change. So she was, just wasn't, like, prepared. Honestly, none of the new directors were prepared or knew what to teach because all the dances that we knew, the directors who taught us that, they were in the room. So it was very awkward. So I remember it was like all the older directors were teaching their like one or two eight counts while the rest of us were like scrambling to figure out something to teach. 
anything to teach, literally anything. One of my friends just made up stuff. <laughs> it was it was it was awkward. It was it was uh, it was it was not the most shining moment for this head director, I would say. So for me, in my absolute panic, my mind only went to Chinese dance. So it, the question of my mind became, what was the Chinese dance with the least amount of technique that I remember, but is also the closest to the general basic style that the people in this room could theoretically do? And my mind went to Huai Hua. And I ended up teaching the, the traveling groups part from right after they finished traveling to the other side of the stage, right up until we get into the cube. Apparently, I taught it well because people, I remember people came up to me afterwards and then they complimented me on not sucking. So I guess the big question right now is, do I remember that section? Yes. But that's it for today's episode. I guess I'm glad that this is a podcast and not something... Like, I don't have to prove to you that I know this section of the dance. You kind of have to take my word for it. <laughs> but thanks for listening. And I hope you join me next week for another episode of Freestyle Sauce, a dance podcast. <laughs>